0: I want to tell you about Joe's albums and their two locations, the original shop at 317 Main Street in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, and their second location at 5 Market Street in the college hipster town of Northampton on Western Massachusetts. These are two amazing stores to go buy vinyl, both new and used, and a lot of other cool stuff too. It's hard to walk in either locale without walking out empty-handed due to their amazing collection of records and other cool goodies like t-shirts, mugs, posters, etc. And if you can't find what you're looking for in the retail shops, check out joelsalbums.com. They got everything there, man everything, well, maybe not everything, but almost everything, Joe's albums. We love them, and you will too. Check out Joe's stores and tell them
1: Twisted Rico sent you. Baby Loves Tacos proudly supports the Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico podcast. Since 2016, we've been serving soulful, whole Mexican-style food out of a tiny storefront, 4508 Liberty Avenue in the Bloomfield section of Pittsburgh. Um, We believe in supporting the arts community-based initiatives and podcasts like Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico uh, because they add a richness and vibrancy to our lives, uh, help to connect people, build community, and uh, demonstrate that following your, your dreams and your passions, and holding on to relationships and spreading the love and support that we hear so much about on the podcast uh is is really the only way to combat um ever-changing world where big businesses and corporations are uh, squeezing out the small guy so if you haven't already subscribed if you don't support via patreon or any of the other platforms, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's a real privilege to listen to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico, and it's a privilege to, to hear the stories about um, you know Steve's experiences with many bands, uh, promoting, managing, and the really awesome stories from his guests. Something I look forward to every week, sometimes twice a week, And, um, you know, my life would be very different if I didn't have blowing smoke with Twisted Rico to look forward to. All right. Take care.
0: Yes, we are. Welcome to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. I hope everybody's doing well out there. We just played the title track from the 1989 album, The Gift, from Bullet LaVolta, one of the great songs to emerge from the late 80s Boston music scene. And today we put a little bow on top of our Bullet LaVolta files as we are joined by Kurt Davis, a.k.a. Yucky Guype the notorious lead singer of Bullet LaVolta. Hurt and I spoke for over an hour about a bunch of cool stuff. So stick around for that and hold on because we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. For those of you unfamiliar with Bullet LaVolta, They made a huge mark on the Boston music scene in the late 80s and released their debut self-titled EP on Tang Records. A few years later, they were signed by RCA Records, but managed only one album and an EP before disbanding. In many ways, it's a familiar story what happened to them at RCA. Many bands got major label deals in the 80s and 90s. There was like a major signing frenzy going on with major labels. And it was a crapshoot of who was going to stick against the wall and who wasn't. Unfortunately, Bullet LaVolta didn't stick, but that doesn't mean they weren't one of the best bands from that era. They were part of a group of bands in Boston that stuck together, played together, and at times were interchangeable. The Lemonheads, Blake Babies, Moving Targets, members were coming and going. They were also friends, not only playing gigs together, but they had a bond. It was a great time to be in the Boston music scene. Kurt Davis already was yucky guy before he arrived in Boston, as he was in the early Midwestern hardcore band, The Repellents, and also designed the cover of the Zero Boys album, Living in the 80s. Zero Boys, if you don't know, were perhaps the most famous of the early hardcore bands that come from the Indianapolis scene. So here I am. Talking with Kurt Davis about Indiana, Bolt La Volta, Customize, the Conks, and a lot more. Enjoy. Sure. I think the last time I saw you, and I could be wrong, was when Sylvain Sylvain played at the Abbey Lounge.
2: Oh, you were there? I don't remember. Okay. All right well then it yeah. hasn't been 30 years
0: so. yeah yeah that was the last time Well, actually that's not necessarily true because i saw the conchs and it might have been after that
2: all it right. might
0: have been around i think 2005 was it when your first record came on i think it was around that time
2: all right what, so where are you are you in la
0: no i'm back here in massachusetts oh. now all right came back cool um I got a lot to talk to you about, man. I mean, you would think since I had Kenny Chambers, Todd Phillips, Paul Caldery, Curtis, Chris Conway, and Corey Luke Brennan, right. all on the show, and we all talked about Paul LaVolta with every one of them, you would think I'd have the whole story, but Clay and Chris are probably waiting for my message. <laughs>
2: You've got the Bullet La Volta podcast, you know, what can I say? But, well, you know, the, the interesting thing, I mean, those, those are all interesting people in their own right, and they've all got, you know, like really interesting stories, you know? Yeah, it's, and it's, I don't... know cool really really, how all that stuff comes together, right? Yeah,
0: and I'm not limiting myself to just talking to one member of every band, because that's ridiculous, because there's always a different story from different right. members, you know? This right. is one of my favorite bands, you know? I mean, I saw you guys... We'll talk about it in a little while, but I did see you at the Paradise when you played the Rumble. Then I saw you twice in L.A. And even though I was living out there, I was, you know, big into the band. But we'll get into that because I want to talk about Indiana first.
2: Okay. Uh, Is it Bloomington that you're from? No, I'm from a small town outside of Indianapolis called Anderson, Indiana, which is about 30 miles north of Indianapolis. And um, so um, there was a, a... a very small contingent of people in my hometown that were in the punk rock. And we migrated to Indianapolis to, to be connected, to see, you know, whatever was going on there. We could, it was the closest thing we had to, you know, to the big city or whatever.
0: I I guess I might've thought you were from Bloomington. Cause I think that I looked at the zero boys record and it says Bloomington on it. So maybe that's why. We're I from couldn't...
2: Indianapolis as well. Um, Paul lives in Bloomington. There you and go. Paul Mahern
0: yeah um when you were growing up out there in the small town, I'm imagining it was probably a real small town.
2: It was about you know it was a typical midwestern small town. It was like sixty thousand people. It was partially you know it was it was rural to some degree. there was farms outlying and then there was a you know during it, it it's like it echoes sort of the the midwestern story where the auto industry was the main industry there and general motors and uh, most people there were involved in that and that's how this the city grew um and that supported them and then they closed up shop in the 80s and uh that this the town never really recovered it's kind it's almost like so my wife and I who was then my girlfriend moved to boston in 1986 but it's almost like when i go back to anderson indiana that everything just closed up shop when i left there so it's really strange going back because everything's like boarded up and dilapidated and just like crumbling you know it's like when i left and i go back there it's like a metaphor for for my memories or something it's weird i
0: didn't realize anderson was that big of a town it's not really that small Sixty thousand. 000 now
2: it's smaller you know i mean like i said that the the town itself is sort of crumbling but they did open up a casino there. So if you if mm. you don't do anything but go on the interstate and pull off on one of the exits, you would think it was a thriving little town. But if you go inside, you see it's just gone.
0: Did you like you mentioned uh you you did, I mean, I imagine you discovered punk rock there. Were you listening to like college radio or something? How did you find out about punk uh, rock? No, there
2: was no college radio. College radio, in fact, was a huge uh I had no idea anything like that existed in, in, in the country. So, in the Midwest, in, in, in Anderson, Indiana, in particular, it was really, we were very isolated. I didn't see the ocean until I was 18 years old, you know. So, uh, I was in the middle of nowhere. We had lakes and we had rivers and things like that. But um, I graduated from high school in 1978. And uh, earlier in 1978, that was the year that the Sex Pistols were touring. America yeah So I saw them on the news and I I mean the thing is like when I was younger uh, I was really into music anyway so I was like totally a music freak Uh, I went to concerts all the time as many as I could you know back in the day when you could go see you know I saw like you know Bob Seger Rush and Kiss on the same bill for like six six dollars and fifty cents yeah I can save up your allowance and go so I started going to concerts when I was about 14 years old And um, and would go as frequently as I as I could, and um, so I was really into music, and I was a big David Bowie fan, and uh, and I read all the magazines, you know, Cream and Circus and Rock Scene and you know Hit Parade or anything that had, I was you know always buying or stealing those magazines, and um, you know soaking them all up, so. I was aware sort of what was going on but I was into the, I was into yes and southern rock and classic rock and you name it you know whatever was out there and then I but I was also like I said a David Bowie fan and I was curious about all these things I was a big Led Zeppelin fan just music in general just was my my thing you know I was sort of a misfit in school and I I was a, sort of an artsy kind of kid and I didn't do well in math and stuff like that and I was not like a, an athletic achiever I was hit by a car when I was 11 so that,
3: ouch well,
2: that put the end uh, to any s- aspiring uh, you know I I was short I was small slight person and I was really into music that was just like you know that was the world that I could live in in my head and I could go into and enter into and put the headphones on and you know small town indiana goes away and all of a sudden you're dealing with a lot of other things and and ideas and concepts and
0: you, you know you know I'm the same around the same age as you and I remember that's what I lived for too going to the concerts in the 70s there were so many great concerts when we were teenagers
3: yeah.
0: it was like every other week there was a major band coming through did you have to go to Indianapolis to see those shows
2: yeah yeah definitely yeah and there were different venues that you know there were that had those shows and, yeah the were, first were concert, ever- I, my first concert was uh the Edgar Winter group with Rick Derringer headlining. And uh, the the opener was Peter Frampton.
0: (laughs) Wow. I saw Edgar and Johnny together with Leonard Skinner opening. And that was in 78, right before the the plane crash, like Mm -hmm. 78, 77, 78. Yeah. The Winter Brothers, they were great. They were great. Were you playing drums at this point already?
2: No, uh, I was. So, I mean, going back even further before all the, the, I'm just going to try to catch up a little bit going back even further just as a kid and you know this as well probably from your own upbringing or whatever that music was just surrounding my life as far as like you know FM radio AM radio and that back then the radio everything wasn't all separated out you know it wasn't all genrefied so yeah. you were hearing Perry Como and the Beatles and Motown and <clears throat> And the yard birds and, you know, the British invasion stuff at the same time, you know, you're hearing Ray Charles and James Brown, and you're hearing all of that same stuff on the same radio station. So it wasn't, it wasn't all according to genres. It was just like what was popular. So that's sort of like the, the osmosis and the periphery of, of my, of my life. And then we watched Ed Sullivan every week. So I'm seeing the doors and the mamas and the papas and, and, um, you know, and I remember seeing, um, I remember seeing Eric Burden singing with the Animals and and he scared me when I was a kid. I was like this 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 really deep strange voices coming out of this, you know, pimply looking teenager guy. It didn't make sense to me. And I was, you know, but anyway, that's sort of the background. The music was the whole thing, you know, my whole life just traveling along with me. And then the Beatles of course were huge and my I had not my mom was Uh, under 20 years old when she had me, she was like 19 years old when she had me and she had a younger brother and he was a teenager that was growing up as I was a kid. So, you know, he was very involved in like, you know, he was a big Beatles fan and uh, into Woodstock and the beach boys and all that. stuff. so all this stuff is around, you know, at the same time. So, Uh, but yeah, to get back to your question, sorry, I diverged there a little bit. Um, But yeah, we had to go to Indianapolis to see all the shows and, um, we had a local um we had a local uh radio station fm radio station a couple uh, there was one in particular and uh, that we we would listen to and they would advertise the concerts that were coming so that's how i found out about them and we had a local record store and i would save up my money to go to the record store and see what was on the shelves and i would go to the cutout bins and buy stuff whatever i you know look was curious about and they were they would have the posters on the walls uh advertising the upcoming concerts and they were the local ticket outlet so i would go there and they got to know me by my my first name there of course
0: what about the drums
2: okay oh yeah the drums no i did not think it was possible for me to play music because i didn't have any talent um until punk rock came along, i was not I wasn't, I wasn't thinking it was even possible because, uh, you know, like I said, I was used to listening to these people who are like virtuosos on their instruments. And it just seems like another world that's inaccessible. And I was happy being a fan and, you know, entering into that world through the the fantasy of whatever, what they were creating. But I didn't think that that was possible until, you know, you hear the Ramones and all of a sudden the, the doors are blown off and you're like, Hey, you know, this all of a sudden becomes something that, that I could do. Although I will say one thing, this is kind of an interesting little touching point. When I was in grade school and then junior high and high school, um, particular not so much in high school, but mostly grade school and junior high, I went to a mostly all black uh, schools. And so there were very few white kids there. And there was one other white kid that was in my class and his name was Hal DeWitt. And um, he invited me over to his house after school one day. And um, I went over there and we, we would listen to his older sister's records. On, and he would play stuff for me that I wouldn't otherwise necessarily hear. That's the first time I heard Led Zeppelin was over there. And I heard uh, the immigrant song and I was like, what is this? I'd never heard anybody sing like that. It sounded like an alien thing. But anyway, Hal's dad owned a nightclub in Anderson, Indiana. And one time we had gone over there uh, in junior high school, we had gone over to the nightclub because Hal had to get the keys from his dad or something like that. And so we were in the nightclub during the day when it was closed and there, the band had their stuff set up over on the stage. And yeah. so I went and sat down on the drums and it was kind of an immediate thing. Like I could keep a beat. You know, I knew I knew sort of intuitively what to do. Um, but that was the only time that I ever sat behind a drum set before. And then punk rock happened and, and things started changing.
0: Uh, did When did you get your first drum set?
2: Well, so in Anderson, Indiana, there was, like I said, there was a really small group of people that were into punk rock. And I didn't know those people at the time. I, I came in contact with them uh, a bit later, um, like in 19... Right at the end of 1978, I started becoming aware of them because I met this guy's sister at a place where I was sort of roadieing for some friends of mine who played in a band. Um, My mom worked for a booking agency also, I I, I mentioned. So we had musicians over at the house all the time. Oh, cool. Um, So I was around live music in in my house and things like that. Um, But anyway, these guys... The first punk rock band in Anderson, Indiana, was these these guys called the Geeks, and I didn't know about their existence. They they I think they formed in like seventy seven seven definitely I think it was seventy seven early, and I did not know them or any of those people. I thought I was just like one of the only people because punk rock was really found on then. It was it was something that yeah, you know, you could kind of probably get beat up for, you know, because everybody was into like Seeger you know, Skinner and stuff like that. So, but I was really intrigued by the Sex Pistols when I saw them coming over to the States and when I was gonna graduate from high school. So when I graduated from high school, I made the decision that I was gonna buy a punk rock record. And it was either gonna be the Sex Pistols album or the Elvis Costello album. And I went to the record store and it just so happened that they had uh, Nevermind the Bullocks uh, in the window. And uh, that made the decision for me, so I bought it. Later, I found out about this band, The Geeks, in, in Anderson, Indiana. And um, I got in contact with a couple of the guys. And The Geeks had broken up. And then a couple of the guys from, from The Geeks formed another band called The Experts. X sperts Yeah, name.
0: I read about them, and, yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did.
2: Interesting. Um, so anyway... Uh, At that point, I was friends with those guys, and um, I started tagging along. Basically, I was a hanger-on. I would go to all their practices and everything like that, and I said I was managing them. I (laughs) didn't know anything about managing anybody, but but I had me me and another friend of mine that was another one of the only people in Indiana that was into punk rock had ventured to Indianapolis by this point, had made some connections there and gone to some house parties and stuff like that we would go see a band called latex novelties in indianapolis who was like the first punk rock band there and um they were great they were mostly a cover band but they threw in a couple they, they threw in some originals as well and they were sort of like the only game in town in indianapolis at that point but then through them i'm my my girlfriend this is all crazy i'm getting all confused because everything gets all wrapped up but one of the guys that was in the geeks was a guy named Dave Slaybaugh, And when I met, I met his sister, as I mentioned earlier at this gig where I, I was roadieing for some friends of mine and she, and this is when I'd just gotten back from Texas and I bought the Sex Pistols album in Texas, cause we were visiting my grandmother. This is uh, the summer of 1978. I came back and, um, I met this girl at this concert, we were playing Frisbee in the lawn and we were just chatting and talking and uh, we were talking about music and she's like, what kind of music do you listen to? And I was like, oh, I like this, that. And I was like, Van Halen was kind of new then. I was into Van Halen and I said, and you know, I'm sort of, I just bought the Sex Pistols album. I'm really kind of getting into punk rock. And she was like, oh my brother loves punk rock. He loves Generation X and the vibrators and the damn... And she starts rattling off and I my jaw hit the ground. I was couldn't believe that this person was saying this. Anyway, it was very convenient for me to get her phone number. She and I started going out and she ended up... She and I ended up going to see Blondie in 1979. Nick Lowe was opening and this was in Indianapolis. And there was a guy standing in front of us in line... And we started talking to him and his name was Marvin Goldstein. And um, he started talking to us that he was the manager for this band called Latex Novelties. And one of the guys from Latex Novelties came over and was talking to him and saying hello to him. That ended up being Tufty, who ended up being in the Zero Boys later. Yeah. So anyway, this is, you know, you start making all these connections. You start meeting all these various people through different ways of, you know, however we we run into the people that we run into. And, and so... To fast forward back to your question and circle around, I'm sorry about all this divergent talk. It's very hard to like <laughs> form a linear path. Once the experts uh, uh, and I were connected, then I started sort of semi managing them or whatever. Well, they 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 broke up, and. Um, I had already made these connections in Indianapolis and started getting the experts opening gigs for like bands, like the last four digits and stuff like that. And in the meantime, the the zero boys were just coming up. They were basically the new band on the scene uh, after latex novelties. And there were a couple other bands, you know, there were Dow Jones and the industrials, they were from Bloomington, which seemed further away. And there was a band from Bloomington called the panics and there were just a few scattered around. Um, So the experts broke up, and uh, two of the guys from from the experts, Dave Slaybaugh and Gary Bullock, um, and I decided to try to form a band together. In the meantime, there was another guy, Terry Starr. He and I were going not just to Indianapolis, but we were venturing over to Cincinnati to go see punk rock bands there because they were getting... The Stranglers and the Gang of Four and those types of band, those yeah. bands that weren't coming to Indianapolis at that point. Um, so we had gone to, uh, I think it was a Strangler show. It might have been a Iggy Pop show. I can't remember which. Could have been 999. I don't know. There were a few shows in Cincinnati we went to, but there was a girl that we met at this concert from Cincinnati because we were looking for a place to crash after the concert so we didn't have to drive back home. And she, took us to this hotel and we checked in and everything like that. So um, she and I eventually, she moved to, to she was coming back and forth to see Terry in Anderson, Indiana. And her name was Jackie and um, Jackie Isaacs. In the meantime, she and I started going out. And so when the experts broke up and we decided to form again, uh, another band, she wanted to play bass. So, I took up the drums, our our singer Dave Slaybaugh had like a scattered kit of put together just cobbled together kit. And we borrowed the kick pedal from the drummer from the experts. And that's when I started. I didn't buy a set of drums. We had just had this cobbled together kit that Dave had laying around of different drums. And that's how we formed the repellents.
0: Okay. Um okay before I know that the repellents had two songs on the Master Tape Volume One and three on volume two. I think that's all that that's there correct. is. And but my other question I want to ask before that, when did you decide on the moniker Yucky Gype? Because you're listed as Yucky Yucky Gype on the uh Master Tape Discogs. Were you Yucky Gype or did they just put that in there after the fact because no, you know became... I was
2: Yucky G Repellent. So I already had so.
0: <laughs>
2: me, me a friend of mine and I this, this guy his, his not it he goes by Johnny Quest um you know at that time everybody hadn't had punk rock names you know
0: EG repellent
2: so uh <laughs> I tried a few different ones I think at first I tried Zygote and um then uh I tried Paul Mall. And, uh, but then I settled on yucky Guy for some reason. It just, just, just rang true you know, I just clicked with me or whatever. So when the repellents formed, I was, yeah, I was yucky already. I was yucky G repellent. Cause we all took the last name repellent when we were. So, and we gave, we gave Gary Bullock his name, which was lumpy. So we called him lump cause he was like lumpy Rutherford from leave it to be. You know? <laughs> and um, so, yeah that's crazy
0: um i did find a flyer a repellents flyer online and you guys open for bad brands, so that's a pretty good gig so did you have a lot of gigs like that when with the repellents
2: well we would play mostly with the locally touring bands we we played with um uh, we played with um you know bands that would come in through like from chicago and we played with toxic reasons quite a bit um Oh yeah, think. Zero Boys quite a bit. The and and when when the other touring bands would come through, I can't remember. I mean, I can't. Remember. We were supposed to play with Black Flag, and that fell through because they had to cancel one of the shows. Um, but the Bad ratio show was was actually sort of a sadly it was a disappointment for us. And even though we were so excited to play with them, you know, we were these kids from Indiana getting ready to play with our favorite band in the world at that point. And they came through and they came rolling through and they just did reggae songs. And then the bass player was hitting on my girlfriend. And it was just like, it was disappointing.
0: Oh, that sucks. Um, I, I kind of I like the the Midwestern bands like Die Kreutzen from Milwaukee. Kreutzen is you, great. You mentioned Toxic Reasons, of course, Negative Approach from uh, Detroit, Zero Boys. Okay, you were involved with the Zero Boys and you designed their album cover. What a great band and a great record! Can you talk about the your relationship with them because? To me, they're one of the great, like those other bands I mentioned. Husker is another one. You know, the Midwestern bands were just fantastic. Effigies, um, but Zero Boys, I feel like they never really got their due. But the, now it seems like a lot more people are in living in the eighties has become more well known. And you know, I know Paul was in the uh, the uh, the hardcore American hardcore film, but tell me about your relationship with them.
2: Well, when my friend Johnny Quest and I were going venturing to Indianapolis to go see shows and whatever, we would just travel there sometimes. Marvin Goldstein that I mentioned earlier that I had met at the Blondie show and was ostensibly managing uh, latex novelties, uh, had invited us to a party um, and there were going to be some bands playing. It was a house party. And um, let's see there was an all-girl band called skunts that were playing and then guns s-k-u-n-t-z i (laughs) believe it was i like that yeah and they were really fun and um you know this a punk rock house party at the time was just like it was mind-blowing it was so fun and so cool to go and there's like a group of people that you know i could relate to and stuff so um one of the bands that played that night was uh Paul Mayher's I, I don't know if it was his first band but he was playing with the, uh these two brothers Bam Bam and Spliff uh Spliff played bass and um Bam Bam played drums
0: did everyone in the entire scene there have a nickname
2: yeah i think so yeah i think so that's awesome and um so they they played and they did a whole slew of like they did. A, I remember they did in particular. I remember they did "Showdown," the cover by the the New York Dolls. Anyway, that's how I met Paul Mayhew, and he was. I mean, I think he was still in high school. He was a kid, and um. So that it, it, it when I was going to Indianapolis more and more because there was more stuff going on there, and I'd go there whenever I could, because Anderson was was no, was not there was nothing happening there. You know, we would just hang out when we were in Anderson. Me and my friends would just hang out in our basement and smoke pot and listen to records or whatever. You know, that's really all there was to do. So we'd go to Indianapolis and the more I went there, I started establishing those relationships with those people. And and there was a vintage store there called Modern Times. And uh, that was sort of like a little bit of a hub of the scene. And it was right next door to the the punk rock, the, the club that had the punk rock bands, Crazy Owls. Which is a really significant place. That was our yeah. that was our CBGB, you know. And and Paul and all those guys, they started having shows at, at at modern times and stuff like that. So I just knew these people and they knew that I they knew that I drew and did artwork. So when it came t- came time, when the Zero Boys were coming up, I saw their first show. They actually um they played in like a sort of an intermission between latex novelty shows. Um, so I saw them, they came out and played and they did like two originals and a damned cover. They were great. And I was like, this is sort of like the future. It felt like it. as soon as they played.
0: Was this before so, the repellents? Pardon? Was this before the repellents were playing um, or?
2: Yes, it was. It was before the repellents uh, were were together. Yeah. So once you know fast forward like you know probably maybe a half a year later six months later whenever they recorded or uh maybe it was a year but i don't think it was a full year um, once they got the album ready and everything like that then paul asked me if i had anything you know anything that they might be able to use or whatever for record cover and i had that picture in a sketchbook that's and awesome I took him the sketchbook and then they blew it up and then that was the history that's the rest is history
0: it's really incredible when you think about everything that happened between 1980 and 84 and it all gets jumbled together especially with the hardcore scene just every every city had the same kind of deal going on so when did you decide to move to boston and why did you move to boston
2: well once the repellents got up and running um it became we, we were going to cincinnati to play gigs we were trying to it was just clear after a certain period of time that the scene was not growing. It was just sort of like, you know, the same hundred people.
0: Small going, scene.
2: Small. Yeah. Yeah. And um I don't know. Indiana just I've never I never felt at home there. It never felt it never felt good. It always felt repressed and it always felt sort of like, you know, just the pace wasn't good i don't know i just never i always felt like a, i didn't fit in there and um so i mean there's there's some a period of time in there when when the repellents broke up and things were not really happening and some of my friends there was a band in between called the primates and the primates was dave slabo from the repellents and lumpy my art the guitar player from the repellents formed a band with um, a couple from the slammies which was rapper on bass, the slammies who were also on the master tape.
0: I thought you told me that Todd Phillips had the great uh, memory. Your
2: memory seems pretty good. Oh, uh, well, he remembers <laughs> dates and clubs and all that stuff. Right? I don't remember. I just remember vague things, you know. But um, so anyway, the primates were in there. And Bam Bam was playing drums for them, but he was also playing, so Spliff and Bam Bam, the brothers I mentioned earlier, played with Paul after the Zero Boys broke up in a band called Dandelion Abortion. So, um, wow, yeah, so, and they were great, really cool band, Uh, also with one of the members from The Last Four Digits played in that band as well, Mike Sheets, who recently just passed away, unfortunately. Uh, So anyway, Bam Bam was splitting duties between bands, so it was like natural fit for me to play with the primates. So I played with the primates for a little while and a place in Muncie had opened up called the no Bar and grill and they were having bands there. And the primates played there a few times, but in, in all this, after the repellents broke up, um, I had gone to Muncie, Indiana and me and my friend, I don't remember who was with me at the time, a couple of friends crashed a party and, um, you know, we used to go to Muncie, Indiana was was the closest college town to Anderson. It was like 25 miles away. We would drive over there and we would crash parties. We'd drive around until we see people on the front porches with red plastic solo cups. And we would know there's a party there. So we would crash the parties. And like, we happened to crash this one party and fate would intervene. And uh, that was where uh, I bumped into Lori, who's now my wife, <laughs> at a party in Muncie, Indiana, when she was going to college there. So she and I established a relationship and uh, we stayed together through that year. And then I moved in with her the, on her last year of college. And when she was approaching graduating, she's like, I'm not going to stay in Indiana. Um, and I was like, That's cool with me. Let's go. <laughs> somewhere so we just wanted to bail out of indiana it wasn't for it wasn't for us you know we just didn't fit in there we didn't want to get established there and her she felt like if she got a job once she graduated we'd be stuck there for the rest of our lives you know and so i was tired of indiana she didn't want to be there we just hitched up and left so Um, we had to decide where to go and we were thinking about San Francisco. Um, We sort of wrote New York and LA off because they seemed a little too big and a little too overwhelming. So we were thinking of San Francisco, we were thinking coastal. So we're thinking San Francisco or Boston. Yeah. And it just so happened that Boston (laughs) had the lowest unemployment rate in the country and we knew we could get jobs or we felt like we could get jobs there. And it was relatively inexpensive actually at the time so uh, we took a little bit of a detour because uh, we hadn't saved up any money and my mother was living in jackson mississippi at the time and she invited us to move down with her we wouldn't have to pay rent we could save up money and then go where we wanted to go so we went to jackson mississippi for about nine months and then wow saved up fifteen hundred dollars i think it was and we got a u-haul and everything we owned packed into a u-haul and uh and hitched it to our car and drove to boston and with two cats and everything we owned and we didn't know anyone and we didn't have jobs set up and we didn't have a place to live we just drove here and started fresh there's
0: so many questions i can ask about that <laughs> but i'm going to go right to this one i'm going to fast forward a little bit Corey told me that uh you responded to an ad that those guys at the time it was uh clay Corey. And Chris and Bill. And And, um, do you remember what the ad said and what made you respond to their ad?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. So when Laurie and I moved to moved here, we got an apartment in Somerville and just like started looking for jobs. And I I happened to go into a copy center near Harvard Square called C.W. Bean. (laughs) And I walked in and Applied and they basically hired me on the spot, so I started working at this copy center. And uh, the copy they like center, that
0: about you, though. Corey know, said the Corey band like that you.
2: I heard Corey say that. I didn't realize, <laughs> you know. But it's funny how how things work out, right? Yeah. How things start laying, and, and you don't really think about it until hindsight, and you look back and you say, like, all these things just came together in the weirdest way, you know, just happened. But it just so happened that about. Two doors down from CW Bean was Second Coming Records. And uh, so, of course, you know, being into music and who I was, I would wander down to Second Coming Records all the time after work, before, you know, during work, whatever, to just check in and see what was going on. So I became friends with the, the clerks there and we would talk about music and I'd buy records and we'd just shoot the shit. And uh, they had a flyer on their wall at Second Coming Records that said, you know, lead singer wanted. I remember it said that. And it said and they had their influences. And the influences were like, I think it said Husker Do. Uh, it said Motorhead. Um, it's, and then it said something about raw power. And so I was like, oh, you know, is that? So anyway, it, it sounded interesting to me. I'd never I'd never sung in my life. I just want to put that out there, too. Wow um, I had played drums, but when we moved to Boston, my drums got broken because I didn't have cases for them. So I wasn't looking to, I didn't have a drum set. So I wasn't looking to drum in a band. I didn't really know what to do, but anyway, I thought the influences sounded good. And, um, so I called them and uh, I was just like talking to them and I don't even remember who I talked to. I don't remember which member it was. It might've been Clay it wasn't bill it could have been Quarry. it could have been clay so anyway i said did you mean raw power the band or did you mean raw power the album by the stooges <laughs> and so i told them about my connection with the zero boys or whatever and um so one thing led to another and i i, I auditioned for them and I had a, I had a, pa- a pile of lyrics. I, they had songs. I think they waited until they had ten or eleven songs before they started looking for a singer. So they already had the music, and so I already had the lyrics, and I just started fitting things to what they wow. had. And uh, you know, so it was
0: I, that. I was going to ask you about that, but I have to ask: what What was your immediate response when you found out that these guys were from Harvard? And what was it like playing well, in a band with Harvard guys? Was it intimidating from an academic
2: standpoint at all for you? I was so naive, Steve, that I had I I just took everything in stride. It's like, I just didn't really know any different, right? So the one thing I would say about that is that if anything, I sort of looked down my nose a little bit about, about, because I was, you know, anti-establishment kind of <laughs> character, right? Um, and when I first went to hear them play, they were playing in a building in Harvard, and in in one of the the building was closed, and they were playing in this in a room in Harvard. I mean, it was just crazy. And but I just took it all in stride because I was like, sort of. I mean, I know that I was going to audition for them or whatever, but. I, I was auditioning them as well like what, what does this band sound like I mean what is you know what, what am I in for here so I went to see them play and um it was a really strange aggregation of people I'll tell you I walked in and and Corey you know basically looked like a professor and he had very short conservative hair and he had he had like uh you know uh uh khaki pants shorts on with like you know little deck shoes and and he's playing this like loud heavy metal uh, guitar you know and then bill totally a jock and he was like a basketball player and uh he and then you know and chris was uh this sort of the beefy drummer guy and 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 clay his hair was starting to grow out a little bit so he has a little bit of a long hair and i was just this punk rock kid so it was a very sort of like I mean, it was a an alternative universe cheap trick. It was like the real deal. These people are, you know, they're strange, nerdy, jockey, You know, I mean, it's just like a lot of things shooting past my head. And then Corey starts playing this like, you know, hammer-on metal guitar, and and Chris is beating the hell out of his drums. And I was like, well, they sounded a little metally to me, you know. And my, and I, but I was like, I, I what do I got better to do, right? <laughs> yeah
0: it didn't it seems like an like you could have gone in there and like ben what the fuck who are these guys and left you know but you did it you stayed.
2: well they were tight they sounded they sounded good they you know i mean they, they were serious they were together they had a place to rehearse and like i was looking for something to do so just like it seemed like the thing to do at the time you know it's it's not until it's funny steve like talking about the Harvard thing is interesting to me because it wasn't until years later, and now down the line, right? I can look back and see this amazing aggregation of people, like everything that I've been been talking about to you, all, all this path is all based on people that you run into along the way and that you make these connections with, right? And if you have some sort of a curious creative mind and if you're somewhat spontaneous person you know you're you you can find opportunities and you meet these amazing yeah. characters i've met these amazing characters it's like it's like the fucking wizard of oz and i'm walking on this yellow brick road and i don't know where the hell i'm going. i'm just trying to get home whatever home is like right? it's this nebulous thing that lives inside you right But you're going along and you meet the Tin Man and you meet the Woodsman. And then, you know, there's bad things happening on the side. There's the Wicked Witch over there and there's whatever things that are, trying. you know, there's 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 a a bunch of mean trees that are throwing apples at you off the sidelines. And you just kind of keep going, you know, and you you meet these remarkable people. And it's not till years later when I look back and I say, like, holy crap, you know, I was like thrown right in the thick of it. We, I moved here and I didn't know anybody. All of a sudden, I'm in Harvard Square and I'm meeting these dudes from like high academia and we're practicing in Harvard, in the buildings in Harvard. We're setting up shows in Harvard. There's a radio station. There's a, I'm working in a copy center. I mean, everything is just like clicks, you know? It's just crazy.
1: It's a
0: great story, man. Did you meet Ben and, and the, the Lemonheads dudes at that time too? Because weren't those guys all hanging out with each other?
2: Well, so... That was that came about through the WHRB thing. Yeah. Um, because Corey and Clay and Bill were DJs there. Um, they, you know, Corey told the story of how he, he knew met up with Jesse Peretz at the uh, at the radio station and stuff and wanted to put together a show because he knew the lemonheads and they would get the radio tapes. So and Curtis Casala worked, you know, he was a DJ there. I mean, all this stuff is all clicks into place. So he set up a show with the lemon when we were pretty early and they were pretty early. And the Blake babies were even earlier. They were just starting out. They had their first radio tape that Corey was really in love with. It was like cocaine sluts or something like that. Was that actually a show that you guys did early on? They put on a show wow. at Harvard in the dining hall and the Blake babies opened and then we played and then the Lemonheads played what and, a
0: lineup and wow
2: every, yeah and, and that was like just I think that was our second show ever we had played one other show at uh Chet's last call was our first show Uh,
0: Let me go back for a second, because now I'm all over the place. Um, You said that those guys had a bunch of songs, the music written, and then I didn't know this. So you came in and you wrote the lyrics to the songs they had.
2: I had a pile of lyrics. Um, Once we moved to Boston and I was not really doing much, Um, I was just sort of like hanging out and sort of taking up space and probably drinking too much beer and stuff like that an opportunity came up for my girlfriend to go to um, go to London and go to Europe and travel. So she did and she left and, and kind of, I was brokenhearted. So I started writing stuff and um, it has a happy ending because she came back to me, you know, once, once LaVolta was up and running and I was like, I'm better now, you know, come, come back. And, you know, she was, kind of miserable there and and didn't have a green card or whatever so and we loved each other we always did so um so I asked her to come back and she did and we got back together and the band was doing really well at that point so um I'm sorry what was the question (laughs) oh so I had yeah so I had been writing you know I had been pouring my heart out on paper and stuff and just writing all these things so you know I, I but wrote, it
0: all seemed to fit in together well with those guys
2: well yeah i guess i mean you know um that's when i was writing like overloading circuits and uh and i didn't actually write baggage uh, i only wrote one verse of that or two one or two verses in a tag along like everybody wrote like clay wrote a verse bill wrote a verse and i wrote some of it and when i auditioned for them they had um one really fast song and i wrote lyrics for that on the spot i was trying to impress them and that's when i wrote the uh because you're mine which is like the master of disaster song yeah i wrote that i wrote that on the spot when i was sitting on the floor at chris kutmacher's mom's house when they played it and then uh the gift i had written that then and you know whatever i had a pile of lyrics anyway and they had songs so i just i just fit them in whatever
0: you mentioned you met curtis at the radio station when did he approach you guys about actually releasing your you know signing you guys to tang records
2: i don't know if he approached us so much as we decided to record so because okay so let me i'm going to backtrack a little bit steve i don't mean to hijack your thing but earlier you had asked about college radio in indiana and i said there was, and college radio was a revelation to me so when i was working at the copy center Uh, My first job there was as a delivery driver. So I would deliver copies to the Harvard campus and to BU and whatever. This is how I learned my way around the city. But when I was driving around, I would listen to WHRB and WNBR. And WHRB did the Record Hospital's History of Punk Rock at that time when I just moved here. And also the radio stations were also playing local music. Which was blowing my mind. I just couldn't believe I'm hearing the first time I heard Iggy Pop on the radio. I, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that they're playing this stuff on the radio. Oh, I'm locked. My, my screen is locked up. But anyway, I couldn't believe it. I there didn't, you go. I, I didn't believe any, I didn't know anything like that existed. I didn't know. I knew a little bit about college radio because when I was in the Repellents, we had done an interview in uh, Cincinnati for, for their WAIF, one of their. Local radio station.
0: Corey, it's funny because Corey said the same thing when he came to Boston. He was unaware of, and then he heard Curtis's show. That's exactly what he yeah, said.
2: Yeah, it was so it was mind blowing. I I couldn't believe it. the the radio. I couldn't believe it, and the, the fact that a local band could get on the radio and be played next to the, my favorite bands. I was just like, I couldn't believe it. So, so anyway, did, I, did at, you guys
0: record the whole record before you went before Tang put it out? Well. I mean, before they came to you, this to deal. Of, so
2: since there's two parts, there's the Corey part and the Kenny part. What happened was uh-huh. we recorded. We decided to go in and record something to put on the on college radio. So we went and recorded the stuff with Corey. At that time, as a radio tape, uh, and we did baggage, and uh, we released that to radio. But after the 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 night, the very night that we mixed, finished mixing baggage. He dumped it on a cassette for us. Tom Hamilton, our engineer, uh, dumped it on a cassette for us. And the the group of us went to, I think we must have gone, I think we must have taken the number one bus or something. So we got off at Mass Ave and Corey had this boom box and he puts the cassette in and it's nighttime and we're running through Harvard Yard and he's blasting baggage out of this boom box while we're running as fast as we can to get to the radio station. And he's playing baggage and we're running across Harvard yard, all of us, the the whole band. And we run across the yard and we get, we get to WHRB and Curtis is on the air and he played it. Wow. Yeah. So, and then, so I think initially there was a little bit of a hesitation on his part to, to sign us exactly. I think he wanted to see how the band was going to shape up and and what was, you know, I don't think he was just like, he wasn't chomping at the bit to put it out. You know what I'm just saying? Um, It took us a little while to get established, I think for him. And then, then once Corey left and then Kenny joined, then Curtis has a double interest because he's already moving targets. targets. You know, he's already got a relationship with Kenny and so then we, were, we continued on and, and we recorded some stuff with Kenny. And I think at that point, Curtis was like, yeah, sure, I'm going to sign La Volta.
0: Was that an easy transition from Corey to Kenny? I imagine it was pretty easy.
2: It was easy because um, Ken came, first of all, he said he wanted to join the band. And then he learned the songs. So when he came in, he he played the songs. I mean, it was like, he's got this incredible uh, facility for doing to being able to do that, and he, he's,
0: he's 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 incredible.
2: <laughs> he's awesome. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, again, the people you meet along the way—it's just my 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 uh, my trajectory, my story, my path, my journey, whatever you want to call it—is all really just. Um, I've I've been so incredibly like lucky to. Have run into these really amazing people and really creative cool people that i've had to work that i've been able to work with like alongside of and me who basically um my my talents are are they're finite <laughs> Let me
0: uh, say. you're selling yourself short you're now uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i i know i i was i don't know you don't you wouldn't know this but i remember i was working for a uh i was in uh i think it was a roadrunner at that time and the bcn asked me to be a judge in the rumble and i was lucky to be a judge the night you guys won your preliminary preliminary, preliminary round i was there and i was just <clears> blown <throat> away that was the first time i saw the band 1988 i believe that was and uh, i think kenny had already replaced Corey. Corey couldn't remember if he played the rumble or not but i no, think he would have remembered i think you, would yeah it was definitely kenny uh, let's talk about the gift for a minute here um it's an unbelievably great record uh, this you know all the st- songs are good i know you work with different people but paul coldery he recorded that the song the gift and and a few of the other songs were you happy when you first heard the results of the gift cuz to me it's just such a great sounding record
2: yeah i think we were all stoked i mean i was relative i was very Green when it came to recording studios and all that stuff. I mean, well, first of all, I want to say you know, hats off to Tom Hamilton because the baggage stuff and and uh, Dead Wrong and those sound those sound great. Yeah, Yeah, very powerful. You know, like baggage is like a steamroll. That song really goes and it holds up. But so that you know, hats off to him. He got some really good sounds and Chris's drumming was phenomenal. And anyway. but i was green you know so it was like it was it was i don't think i I, but i was also really naive so i don't really know it's like not knowing that you're at harvard when you're at harvard i mean you don't really the the weight of it wasn't and and the weight of 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 that doesn't uh it's just part of the course kind of and you just do what you do when you're there but are you also referring to paul Paul,
0: are you also referring to paul coldery when you say something like that, like you weren't, didn't realize who, you know, much about him at the time.
2: Well, you know, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, um, he didn't have the resume at that time.
0: Yeah.
2: You right. know what I mean? So, I mean, Radiohead didn't exist. So um, he didn't have the resume at the time. There was no such thing as whole, you know, Um and the pixies were on their way up. So there's like a lot of stuff that, that happened that along the, the same time. But you know, you don't realize your good fortune a lot of times and stuff like that. And then but yeah, I thought it sounded good. We were we were stoked, you know, to have it. I kept wanting him to turn the vocals down. I was very self-conscious. So the vocals were a little low on that record.
0: Um Todd then joined the band and replaced Chris, and then soon after that, maybe I don't know how much sooner, Duke replaced Kenny. Do you, what's your remembrance, remembrance about how the RCA deal all came together? Todd uh, painted a pretty bleak picture of how RCA treated you guys. You know, he said that the guy that signed you guys had moved on really quickly, and it was- Yeah, hit.
2: he told it very well. Um I'm gonna be a little less bleak about it because here's the thing, right? Everything's sort of a, there's always a give and a take. So if something's happening over here, there's something else that, there's good things and bad things, right? So the fact that they weren't really interested in us, benefited us in some ways. We, we, we got the producer we wanted, we got, to, we got the budget to go to LA and to record where we wanted to. And we were able, we were kind of left to our own devices to some degree when we were recording that record. They weren't like, where's the hit? I don't hear the hit because they didn't give a shit. They weren't, they weren't looking over our shoulders. There were a few people in the, in the, uh, and there were a few people in the, in the office at the label that were, that were pretty cool. And, you know, we could get along with them and talk. I just don't think that they knew what to do with us. That's really quite honest is like, we fell through the cracks and I don't think it was like, I don't think it was like, we don't care about this band. This band sucks. It wasn't, it wasn't adversarial. It was just like, they just didn't know what to do with us and they didn't care about us. And we sort of like, I guess they just wrote it off. I don't know. They had an opportunity, I think with the band to be able to, uh, if they had. So the one, the one thing that I can say is that if you look at the bands we were touring with and playing with, like Soundgarden is a great example. Um, they had the belief and the weight of their label behind them. So when you're on the road with a band like Soundgarden, you can see the machine that we did not have. And you can sort of see those things working. And when they go to the record stores in those towns, there's posters up. There's Their record is in stock. You know, we had a black and white poster and it's smaller. And it's like, if there's one at all. And you know we're not getting the press out there you know whatever there's there's you could see that that Soundgarden's label had a, a longer term vision for what they want they were going to develop this band they were yeah. going to find them and they were going to grow them and it, eventually it paid off for them right you see that
0: well I worked at A&M Records at that time so I know exactly what you're saying we, yeah we so were... you could
2: see that you could see yeah. the mechanisms of that happening yeah we were willing to do the work. We were willing to do the, the the songwriting and get on the road and do the work, you know? And so it, it's easy to fault them for RCA, I mean, for not holding up their end of the bargain, but I think that that's a pretty common tale. And I it don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's selective to Bullet La Volta. It's just like there was a transitional period for RCA. They didn't know what to do with us. We were one of the bands that just got once they lost their a guy and, and we lost our a guy and the president of the company shifted, they didn't know what to do with us. And we were just sort of like, you know, collateral damage. Right. So I'm not bitter about it because we got to I have had so many great opportunities to be able to do things that I never thought I was going to be able to do when I was a kid sitting in my dining room you know, with the headphones on, drawing a picture for, you know, that later ended up on the Zero Boys record or whatever. This is way, way beyond what I ever could have expected. I'm traveling, I'm touring the world, I'm playing music, I'm living my, you know, what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a rock star, I wanted to play music and be a creative person. I wanted to make my living playing music. That's what I wanted to do. Now, we were never really able to make a living. So, I mean, I think that some people could be embittered by that, but But the band, when it came time to close up shop for the band, there were a lot of factors, you know, I mean, I was away from my new son for many months and it it was, you know, it was just not optimal. And then there were some internal pressures in the band and the label, was, you know, there was a lot of things tugging around that just made it seem like that we ran our natural course. That's the way it felt to me. So it's easy to blame it. It's easy to blame it on the label. Yeah. But you know, whatever. We got to do a lot of things because of it. So, you know.
0: You already answered my next question, but I wanted to say, you know, with Dave Jordan and personally, and I think other people thought this too, that Between the Lines clearly was a song that was a single that could have been on the radio. I think so anyways. And I think other people think that too. So I think that I can understand that you were happy about where you were and everything but i do think that rca did drop the ball unfortunately on you guys and yeah
2: there's some missed opportunities there I don't, i'm i not blind to that it's just i can't you know I'm, I'm not kind of uh things happen you know i don't know you're not bitter
0: I'm, you're not bitter I don't know if they
2: happen for a reason but i'm just saying like you have to make peace with the things that have happened in order to be able to you know to maintain a uh, be a happy person
0: yeah, there's a couple other things I want to talk to you about, uh, yes. you know, customized, you know, I mean, I, I don't think you took that much. Was it a long break that you took between Bullet Alter and customized?
2: It wasn't that long. So I was by the time that LaVolta was winding down, I had already been working at Mystery Train Records on Newberry Street uh, when we when we were I think when we did, you know, like our last two tours or something like that. So working at Mystery Train, you know, uh, I was working with Peter Prescott. Yeah. And he, he was done with the Volcano Sons and, you know, and we had another guy in the, uh, it, it, that I worked with named Ed, Ed Yezijian, who was a great musician and a really fun guy. And he and Peter and I, you know, we worked at the record store together and we, we were sort of like listening. We were, we were you know, you play records for each other. You're sort of in the same headspace, you know, you're hanging around with each other and Peter wasn't, doing anything with the volcano sounds but he's another guy that i've run into in my life where it's just like these really cool really creative people that i've been fortunate enough to like rub elbows with and work with peter's amazing talent really just like a he writes songs like most people grow fingernails i mean he's just like they just come out of him it's just wild i, I you, there's you don't meet very many people like that and he's just super tuned into something of his own creative abilities um uh, but anyway he was writing songs and he but he's like i want to hear what you know he was making his own like little four track recordings on a task cam recorder at home and stuff and he's like i want to hear what these songs sound like with the band so he got bob moses a friend of his that used to like roadie and played in, uh, he used to roadie for um, mission of burma back in the day and he was in busted statues um as the guitar player yeah yeah good corey, band. corey brennan also played with busted yeah. statues for a while yeah. it's very incestuous but um so he got bob moses to play bass and ed said he would play guitar and peter wanted to play guitar and he was looking for he asked me if i would play drums because he knew i used to be a drummer and i was like sure you know so we got that's that's pretty
0: pretty complimentary when the drummer of mission burma asked you to play (laughs) drums for his band
2: (laughs) or foolhardy
0: (laughs) um so you, you you did two records with them did you guys do much touring
2: we did not we uh we did not do much touring they they did a tour after i left when malcolm travis joined the band yeah who you know inarguably is a a, a much more accomplished drummer than than me but but i will say that you know to my to my credit in that band that um the chemistry of those four of, of the original four people was you know I, I never felt like uh the weak link i was just I was one of the characters in the band, you know, so I felt integral uh, in the in the customized experience, you know.
0: And I I don't want to brush over the conks because you guys did put a a great record out on Bomp Records, which is one of the best garage rock labels in the world. And you put a second record out. There seemed to be a lot of a little bit of a time lapse there. Did you just take a break between customizing the conks or did you were you just?
2: well so you know um the reason that i left customized was because we we had another kid and i will you know i, I yeah. was splitting my time and i was like it was just getting harder to split my time between a band and, and at that point anybody that's had that's had children knows that you know I, it was just became splitting your time between working and playing and being at home with your family you know it's just certain certain things have to be sacrificed and the thing to be sacrificed for me has always been the band. i go for my family, right? So that's what happened with La Volta. That's what happened with Customized as well. So um, there was a little bit of a break there. Um, and um, in the, it, after Customized, a friend of mine named Ron Ward, who I've also had the good fortune of, of, of rubbing elbows with through the year. Ron Ward actually did a spoken word thing at the last La Volta show at TT The Bears. Um, he did, he read poetry and stuff uh, at, at our last show. So I knew, and, and Ron also used to work at mystery train records. So he's a good friend of mine. He was in the blood oranges back in the day. Oh and yeah. Yeah. Other shows, uh, other bands. But anyway, Ron is this really incredible character. And, um, he had moved back to Boston from New York, uh, in the, in, he was in speedball baby and customized used to play with speedball baby good band. Speedball. Yeah. Great band. So. Ron speedball baby broke up, Ron moved back to Boston and he was playing. So he asked me if I played, per- he was playing drums and let's see here. So here's where my memory starts to mess up a little bit. Anyway, he was playing drums. He asked if I wanted to play percussion with the, with the band. So I did, and we were trying out guitar play. John Williams was originally playing guitar with us Uh, And and Yasmin Kuhn was also uh, the singer and the the guitar player. Um, So, and that was called Bottleneck Drag. Uh, That was a band that Yasmin and Ron formed in New York at the same time Speedball Baby was going on. I think Kid Congo Powers played with them for a little while and some other guys, Jack Martin and stuff, people that were. um, So anyway, Ron moved back here. I joined up with Bottleneck Drag for a little while playing percussion. And uh, we, John Williams kind of dropped out and we were looking for another guitar player and we were auditioning guitar players. And I was working at Mystery Train and I had a friend named Bob Wilson who was working at Mystery Train uh, who used to be in a band called Bald Guys. And I asked Bob if he wanted to audition for Bottleneck Drag and he came in to play and um, Yasmin and Ron didn't think he was right for the project, but I liked playing with Bob. And so I was just the percussionist on the side of bottleneck drag. It was, I was not, you know, it was not, you know, it was a sort of a offhand sort of yeah something to do. It was fun. And, uh, but, you know, I was like, Oh, maybe form another band together. So I talked to Bob and I was let's, 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 let's try something out. And at that time we were like listening to, um, Oh shoot. What was Bob Log's band called? Um, you got me so anyway it we was pretty stri-
0: to- are you going to talk about how the conks were more stripped down yeah sounding? so we yeah. were so we
2: were there were so we were listening to these really stripped down bands the Gorries and stuff like that
0: love the Gorries.
2: yeah they're amazing so um bob and i started playing songs uh in the in the back of mystery train in central square and there <laughs> there was a drum set there but there was no hardware there was a, there was so there was a snare drum and a, and there was a floor tom but we didn't have a kick pedal and we didn't have cymbal stands and we didn't have a <laughs> snare stand so we had these record crates back there so we put the we put the record crates out and set the snare drum up on that and we had the floor tom and I would just keep the beat while we were, would write these songs and um uh so Bob knew this guy John Porth that he used to play with And um, so he asked John to play bass and that's how the conks were formed. And uh, we were gonna look, I was gonna be the singer and we were gonna look for a drummer once we got up and running and uh, but we just, kept the same stupid drum setup the whole time and we were together for 12 years
0: <laughs> wow that wow! i didn't realize it was that long yeah
2: it's by far the longest Folks. running band i've ever been in <laughs> wow wow and it was All a blast right. we had so much fun with that band <laughs> i mean we did you know it, at the time like that was the most um that band was the most indicative of 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 my tastes of any band i've ever been in like la volta was always sort of like it was never kind of my favorite kind of music if that makes sense you know what i mean it's like uh i was more i was into more weird more aggressive stuff
0: conks you know, were kind of punky in their own garage rock yeah. way you know well, I absolutely mean, you yeah. went back to your roots you know sure um one more thing now you're playing in a band now that's very different. Um, Daughter of the Vine, which is Margaret Garrett from Mr. Airplane Man. She's she's awesome. And Chris, Chris also on bass and a couple other people. You guys released a six song EP. Yeah,
2: Greg called... Porter and and, and Abby. Um... Yeah,
0: sorry, I didn't have all the names here. Uh, You guys released a six song EP called Mystic Valley Parkway. I actually listened to it a few times. And then I revisited it. It's really good. It's very psychedelic sounding. How do you feel about playing that style of music?
2: Well, so Margaret and I go back to the conks days because Mr. Airplane man, I
0: started there too. The
2: conks were starting. We were just getting up and rolling. We, you know, Bob and John and I listened to like the place we were where we were coming from was like, so with the conks, we always wanted to sort of pay tribute to our influences, but we didn't want to be a genre band. So we weren't trying to be a rockabilly band or a blues band or a punk band, or we wanted to just like take everything that we were influenced by and sort of amalgamate that and and pay tribute to our influences by what we were doing without aping a particular style right so that was the sort of the concept so we were listening to tons of like link ray and like surfing music and rockabilly and stuff like that but we're also listening to tons of delta blue stuff and all the fat possum stuff that was coming out at the time was you know was really significant so yeah and bob and john and i were always really into like mississippi fred mcdowell and Robert Johnson and, you know, even more than that, like Skip James and just all kinds of stuff and all the stuff from the 50s, all the r and blue and blues stuff from the 50s. So one day I was um, at the Central Square um, outdoor fair. They block off the road on Mass Avenue you could walk up and down. So I, and I, Mr. Airplane Man were playing on the street, Margaret and Tara were playing. Uh, Tara was playing, you know, plastic drum tubs, you know, uh, buckets, and Margaret was playing slide guitar, and I was like, "Who are these people? They were amazing." So I stood there and watched them. You know, I couldn't believe it because it was very similar to conceptually. I felt like a kinship immediately with what the conks were doing. I was like, "We've got to play with them," and I couldn't. I just couldn't believe they existed. It was like one of those things that was just crazy. So because bob and i were and john were just getting started up and then we see them and so about a month later after i saw them we were at this fat possum show um rl burnside was playing and uh t-model ford was playing and uh we and Sidel davis so it was at the house of blues in, in uh, harvard square and we were at the show and I look over and I see Margaret and Tara there and they're like dancing, you know, and, and Margaret has like, they're, they're waving their arms up in the air and stuff. <laughs> and I was like, that's those girls. I tapped Bob, and I was like, that's them. I saw them on the street playing. So anyway, I connected with them. We connected with them and was we like, we have to play together. We have a band da, 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 da. we'll set up the show. Da, da. So we ended up starting, started playing with them. So we were, we were sort of like brother and sister bands with Mr. Airplane Man and the Conks. We play. We would play residencies at the at the Plow. We played a residency at the Abbey Lounge when that was coming up and stuff like that. Um, and then I had played a couple of times filling in for Tara when uh, she couldn't make a gig, and Margaret wanted to do it because she needed the money and stuff. So I played with her a couple of times, but, but through the So years.
0: as as Mr. Airplane Man.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! Cool. I just a couple of times, you know, and I would, but I would play my congas drums. I didn't play the full set. Um, And then, uh, so anyway, I was always just a big, huge huge Margaret uh, fan. Uh, In fact, Mr. Airplane Man to this day is in the top three favorite New England bands of all time. La Pesta and Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers and Mr. Airplane Man. Those are the three for me.
0: Those are three pretty good ones.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they, they have a little, yeah. So anyway, um, I had, after the Conks, kind of decided to retire from music. I was like, I was really sick of playing bars. And I was, it was putting me in harm's way sometime with drunks. And I was just, and it, being out at 3 a.m. and I'm a certain age, I was just like, and plus, you know, the lure of the couch in my ass, the magnetism was undeniable. I just wanted to, I didn't want to go out and practice every week, whatever. It was just like, uh, I was kind of done with it. You know, just my headspace wasn't into it. My hearing is, a, is beat, whatever. And I was just at a place in my life when I didn't want to do it anymore so I just retired basically from music but in the interim uh, Margaret started up again and started playing and so she met up with Chris and he wanted to play bass so she wanted to get in a band together with Chris to sort of like She liked the way that he played bass and he would just hold down the root and she, you know, she could do what she wanted to. So she started deciding that she wanted to play again and form a band. She asked me to play drums. And I was like, I knew that if I didn't do it, I would have the worst case of regret. You know, uh, I couldn't say no they just suck you back in. So
0: yeah, it's funny cuz when Margaret was on my show, uh it was 2020 actually during the pandemic, we we did a we did a show over at New Alliance and yeah, she told me to- about she said I'm going to get Kurt to play with us, you know, and uh and I I I I and then I listened to the record and I was like, wow, it's really good. You guys are good, man. She's great. You guys together are fantastic. So she
2: is amazing. And I knew, you know, so being just such a big fan. I mean, so here's the thing, right? With all these people all through the years that you touch base with and these creative sparks fly between all these people that that play, you know, that's what that's what I live for. It's not for the product. It's for the creative process. It's for the, the, the feeling that you get when you're it's the closest thing I, I know of to understanding like how athletes must feel when you're part of a team and you're working on something that's outside of yourself, but you're a part of it and you're contributing to something that's bigger than you you know yourself. So, you know, I mean, of course, everybody that plays in bands has egos and stuff like that. And you have to sort of navigate relationships and everything. That's all well and good. But it's those creative sparks and those moments that you're playing together when it just makes, when something happens, it's just like, it's an elation and it's meditation and it's like, it's the stuff that's good for your soul. It's the stuff that makes life worth living, you know, those kind of moments when you can have those things. And I've been lucky in my life to have thousands and thousands and thousands of those kind of experiences. And I think that, you know, my wife and I talk about this amongst ourselves sometimes is that you know just the rock and roll lifestyle has been something that's just been so great it's such a great life because you sort of carve this parallel path to like the straight world and you can live in the straight world and work in the straight world and you can do the things that you need to do to be able to facilitate a life but Off to the side, you're doing these other things. And those are the things that are important to you. Those are where you're cultivating your relationships. You're having your experiences. You're out for a whole night, listening to the best music, watching the best people do the funnest thing. And you're in another world and you're able to transport, you know, you're not in here now anymore. You're somewhere else. And then, you know, you go out and you party with your friends and then you watch the sun come up. How many people, how many times has that happened to you? right? I mean, you've, you've had that life, you know, I I,
0: I can't get out of it. I'm still in it, dude. No,
2: you know what I'm talking (laughs) about. So it's like, it's like a great way to have a really fulfilling life. And, and it's not hinged on your identity in a corporate world or in a corporate environment or in a way that's where that's some, it's, it's, it's a, it's been a, a world of freedom for me, you know, it's like, it's, particularly as as yucky guy you know where you, you who has license to go out on stage and do the things that i did and it was where it's not only accepted but encouraged to act like a raving lunatic for an hour it's awesome
0: <laughs> okay that was so well said we're ending it right there <laughs> they, really thank you very much man i appreciate you taking the time to come on
2: well i appreciate it too and uh but i do want to say more about Miss daughter of the vine It's just like it's so rewarding playing this kind of music at this time of my life because it it really is um, the the music that we're creating is really speaking to something that it, to where I am here and now like the Conks did for its time yeah. it there you know so that's kind of like that's kind yeah. of put put a little bit of a, a, a you know an ending on it or whatever.
0: Thank, Thank you, everyone. man. You know, I'm glad that you feel content about where you're at, man. That's, oh, yeah. that's the most important happy. thing in I'm life is happy. to. you've done a lot and you're doing it. You're still doing it. And I, yeah, I can my appreciate kids are doing
2: it too. I should plug them. Both of my boys are both playing, play music and I'm really proud of them.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, they Max in a band played, already?
2: Yeah. Max plays in a band called blame it on Whitman and they're awesome. And he's really talented. He's a super good songwriter and a super good guitar player. And my other son, Alex, he's he's in Austin, Texas right now. Um, and he plays bass in a couple of bands and he plays guitar as well and writes his own stuff.
0: Wow. I'm going to have to check these guys out.
2: Yeah. Um, Alex's project has got some kind of weird name that I can never remember. I'm always getting to try to change it. It's like, yeah, I can't. I, I would tell you what it is. I can't remember. I'll send you a link.
0: <laughs> cool, man. All right. We good? We got it all? I think so. Thanks, Kurt.
2: Yeah, no problem.
0: That song, Between the Lines, from the Swan Dive album, the last Bullet La Volta record. What a fantastic track. So how was that? Uh, we might be able to move on now that we have had. Now that we've talked to Kenny Chambers, Todd Phillips, Corey Luke Brennan, uh, Kurt, of course, all members of Bullet Volta. We also talked to Curtis and Chris Conway from Tang about Bullet Volta and Paul Coldery. By the way, just so it didn't sound like I was completely off my rocker, Paul Golder, Paul Coldery, by the time he recorded that record, The Gift, he had already worked with the Pixies, Blake Babies, Throwing Muses, and Dinosaur Jr. So it wasn't like he hadn't worked with anybody. Sorry, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt made it seem like, well, no one knew who he was then, but he people did know who he was then, and The Gift is a really great record that he contributed to. Uh, he may not have recorded with Hole or Radiohead by then, but he, the track record was there, so I don't want there to be any confusion about that. I know I mumble and jubble a lot, and I get off track sometimes, but we're doing everything we can to keep you people entertained out there. All right, if you're enjoying this entertainment... Uh, this is the part of the show where I ask you to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash twisted Rico. If you're on Spotify, you can subscribe to the pod track, the pod track, the podcast. Yeah, we're on the track here. The pod cast. You can subscribe there as well. No, I'm not going back and editing any of that. Edit, edit, edit. No, no, no. If you want to reach out to me, my email is twistedrico at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get music from you. We're also on all the social media platforms, including YouTube, where you can actually watch the Zoom interview that Kurt and I just did. Yucky, yucky. Don't be confused. Yucky guy, Kurt Davis, same guy. And if you want to watch some clips from that show and other shows, head over to our TikTok page, which is at Twisted Rico. That was a long one, wasn't it? Thank you so much for listening. Until the next time we say goodbye, this is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your sometimes completely insane host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive.